0: I really think you and Aaron are onto something here with titling uh, your podcast and covering belonging because I'm sure everyone has seen that diagram about belonging being at the center of the DEI sort of Venn diagram. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But belonging is such an important part of any workplace initiative. Having employees feel like they belong, that they matter, that they're seen. It hits at the business case. It hits at the moral case. It hits at the culture case.
1: I'm Jade Pichette, they them.
2: And I'm Erin Davis, They I use the pronouns she and her.
1: Welcome to Uncovering Belonging,
2: a podcast that explores the professional and personal stories of unique voices of what it means to
1: belong and the journey to finding our authentic self. I'm really excited, Erin, to introduce Dr. Melissa Horn, who I got to connect with through having listened to her podcast, Just One Q.
0: Welcome to Just One Q. I'm Dr. Melissa Horn, a diversity, equity, and
2: inclusion advocate.
1: Such a fantastic podcast and gave honestly a lot of inspiration for ours.
2: Totally one of my favorite diversity, equity, and inclusion podcasts. We're so grateful to be on her podcast in June of 2022.
1: Yeah. So I'm really excited that we get to talk with her today. So to introduce Melissa, Dr. Melissa Horn, she, her, is a historian. DEI Advocate, and the Director of Growth and Business Development at Dialectic, which is an inclusive workplace learning company based in Guelph, Ontario. At Dialectic, Melissa helps DEI champions apply science-backed methods to activate inclusive practices within organizations. Melissa holds a PhD in modern U.S. and African-American history from Rutgers University, and has designed targeted social justice education for organizations both big and small. She is also the host of, as we mentioned, the Just One Q podcast, which spotlights DEI practitioners with cutting-edge ideas for driving real cultural and behavioral change. Well, where Melissa is calling in from, is located between the Lakes Purchase, Treaty 3, and the treaty lands and territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit. It's recognized that the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples have unique, long-standing and ongoing relationships with the land and each other, and that the Anawandran people are part of the archaeological record of this area. And so we're very grateful to have Melissa join us today. Yeah,
2: thank you so much for having me. Melissa, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. This is sort of, I guess, our second time connecting, but really, I'm excited to hear your story. So welcome and let us know how did you get into this work and a little bit about you. How did I get here? Um, well, Jade mentioned I'm a
0: historian, so we'll start kind of, we'll do a little bit of a history and actually started with history. I originally uh, received my PhD in Black history and my journey towards that topic is interesting. hmm <laughs> So it happened that I uh, was trying to uh, enroll for a history course. Uh, I went to Carleton for my undergrad and the course that I wanted was full and there was one on the civil rights movement. And so I ended up taking that course. And there was a, a moment there where I'm learning about the history of these young students who are willing to die for rights and privileges that I often, you know, didn't even think about, I didn't have to t- think about, right? i lived a fairly, I would say, privileged life. And Thinking about what would I put myself on the line for and what would I what would I do just became something that I felt I kind of needed to pursue a little bit. What you know, what were things that mattered to me?
1: Hi, everyone, this is Jade, and I'm recording this after the fact. During the discussion today, one thing that I find particularly interesting is how her journey led to a PhD focused on Black history and the civil rights movement. It's always important in how we address these discussions where it's important to learn about Black and other civil rights histories that so few of us were taught in depth in reality in school. We also have to be very aware to not center ourselves when we are white in these discussions. So we need to know history and knowing history is powerful and recognizing how civil rights and other movements for justice are interconnected and linked, which is a big part of today's discussion.
0: And for me, knowing that my cousins who, um, they're black, they uh, were having different experiences than I was having. And so this sort of all came together thinking about, okay, there's a lot in the world that I can do. And, And I just became really interested in sort of the idea of race, the history of race, you know, the fact that this is a construct that has been created to create inequalities and to oppress people. And so I got really interested in learning about how race was taught. So after the Civil War, the formerly enslaved uh, men and women of the South, along with missionaries from the North, founded uh, historically black colleges and universities, which we now call historically black colleges and universities. At the time, you know, they weren't called that. But mm-hmm. so I was really interested in the idea of, given that these schools were being founded just after the Civil War, this is also the height of scientific racism. How was race being taught? How were you know what was what was happening in the schools? What were the messages? Because this is a liberatory moment. People have freed themselves, liberated themselves and are seeking education, which previously was illegal in the South. Right. So I got to sort of studying this and looking at that. And as I started to follow the histories of these schools a bit more into the early 20th century, I started to see things popping up that were acts of resistance that looked a lot like what we typically associate with uh, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And so I started to follow that thread and I became really, really interested in how do people affect change where it looks like they may not have the power to do so. So the historically black colleges and universities in the early 20th century were run by white men. They were religious men, ministers from different faiths and their thinking and and the thinking of the students were not aligned anymore. Right. So black students wanted black professors and black leaders because these paternalistic presidents and teachers were not uh, reflecting what the students wanted and they wanted more black history. They wanted to be taught topics that mattered and were relevant to them. And so you start to see that through resistance, through organizing, that black presidents start to be hired and replace the white presidents. So As I'm living living and working in the U.S. or studying in the U.S., um, you know, I also had the opportunity to start there during the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And there was a sort of a confluence of things that were happening at that time. So we're looking at, you know, when we talk about representation matters, it truly matters. There was, I think, a sense there that a lot was possible at the time. Yeah. So I'm studying this moment where... Black presidents are now coming um, into power at historically black colleges and universities. We have the first black president of the United States. And also there's the fight for LGBTQ rights um, and transgender rights and marriage equality. That's all happening at the same time. And so I realized that while I loved history, I couldn't just sort of sit in the ivory tower and just sort of talk about these ideas amongst other professors I wanted to live out social justice. I wanted to do work that really felt meaningful to me and that would make an impact every day. Right. So once I finished my PhD, I came back to Canada and happened across Dialectic. And, you know, I was doing the job search and saw a job posting for a role that I don't think I was really qualified for. But as I looked at the people who uh, were working at Dialectic at the time, when I looked at the mission, when I looked at the projects that they were working on, it just spoke to me. And I thought that this was a company that really aligned with my values. And that was about five years ago, and I haven't left yet. And we just keep growing. And, you know, it's amazing to be able to work for a place where you can live out your values every day.
2: I have so many more questions now. Let's do it. Thank you for sharing that. I am just in awe of what you would have got to learn. And I love the piece of like, well, I wanted to take this one course, but it was full. So I love that you really come at this from a true educational perspective. Me too. I want to dive into something that's a little bit outside of our bubble. You said you applied for a job that you didn't think that you were qualified for. Mm -hmm. As D&I practitioners, as we talk about the space, there's a lot of people who are passionate about it but they don't necessarily have the schooling, have the background. Can you tell us a little bit more on how you brought those two worlds together?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really scary, actually, because I'd been trained for uh, 15 years to be an academic. Right. It is a very particular way of working, of approaching things. And it means that you are spending all the time that you might have been working in the workforce studying and you acquire a ton of skills, but they're not always uh, readily translatable. It's hard to parlay like uh, organizing your dissertation committee into, you know, workplace jargon. Like, what does that even mean? You know, you've organized this big research project. Is it project management? What is any of this? Mm. The thing that I think drew me to dialectic was, one, there were other folks with PhDs who were doing work. So I saw that, Okay, they would understand why I didn't want to necessarily pursue academia and they would see the value of the skills that I had. I think the other thing, too, is that we often create job descriptions and write job descriptions and not saying that this is what happened. But I didn't see myself in that particular role. And I think we unintentionally often create job descriptions that exclude candidates. Definitely. But I actually just reached out to Aaron, who's our president and founder on LinkedIn, and I said, look, I don't normally do this. I literally typed this. I said, I don't normally do this, but I really think that the work you're doing is interesting. I think that I have the skills to you know, help your work. Could we meet? I love that. And he actually invited me in. And luckily, uh, I started over on the research and creative design side. So I was uh, designing e-learning for uh, veterinarians and pet food companies. But it ended up being that my connections back to my former partner in the U.S. that I really was able to merge like all of my passions. Tell me more about that. Uh, My former partner had been working for the National Center for Lesbian Rights and also with some of the other national LGBTQ plus organizations in the U.S. And so we were able to work together creating e-learning and social justice campaigns. And so that sort of from there, I haven't really looked back. We've just been really focusing a lot on figuring out how do we design really good DEI training. And so that It just sort of, again, happened that I was able to, you know, find people who saw the skills that I had and that I was able to maintain certain connections with other folks
2: and then bring that into this company. That's so powerful. And and there's such an element in there for any organization thinking about hiring.
1: Agreed.
2: It's so often... That we just take the job description, this getting down into the weeds, we take the job description that we had before, we take a couple of them, we mash them together, and then we put it out to the world in the same way that we put it out in the world before. And then we get the same candidates applying.
1: Exactly.
2: And so if we really want to be intentional about it, we have to think differently. And so it sort of, you know, leads into this next question. As you share the work that you're doing, why does this work make you feel a sense of belonging? And has that taken time for you to get there? Um, that's a great question. It was a hard decision not to
0: pursue academia. Again, because so much of the training and your identity gets wrapped in with the dissertation, with the work that you're doing. Right. And it's really hard to say to your advisor after they've also feel like they've invested many years into you that I'm not going to pursue this vocation. I hear that. It was really hard to sort of get a sense of like, well, who am I now? Like I have these credentials, but I'm not a practicing academic. Mm. And so for me, it was really trying to figure out what am I going to do that's going to make me feel like I did about the research because I love researching. I loved learning Mm. and I wanted something that made me feel like I was doing something that I had a purpose. And so when I first started out, I mentioned we were doing e-learning for veterinarians and for pet food companies. But that work was meaningful because we were looking at how do you help veterinarians connect to pet owners? It doesn't sound that important, but pets are super meaningful to their owners. Uh, veterinarians love animals. And, you know, sometimes there's a disconnect between the veterinarians are prescribing, they get stuck in the science and the pet owner's like, I don't know how to support my pet. Like, are you truly in it for my pet? Are you trying to get money out of me? And and being able to sort of help the two people come together and have a dialogue felt meaningful. It felt like I was, you know, again, helping people, which is really what I, you know, I wanted to do. Tell me more about that. Um, I think what really... <laughs> helped me to feel that I could bring myself to work was just working for a place that lives its values totally. We work with organizations and employers to help their employees feel a sense of belonging. One of the things that we did was we were writing guides for LGBTQ youth, uh, working with the human rights campaign in the U.S. And knowing that we were designing um, training, that we were creating campaigns that would help kids who may not otherwise have been seen, um, who could see themselves reflected back in the reports that we were designing stuff that were for them, stuff that like wasn't around when I was growing up.
1: I hear that.
0: I grew up in the, you know, the 90s and 2000s, just knowing that I was doing work that would help kids where we didn't have that growing up. So, Mm -hmm. So I really felt like I was able to do work that had meaning to me and that had meaning to my community as well.
1: The thing that I keep hearing from you, Melissa, is about impact. And this is something that I also hear on your podcast, Just One Cue, as well, is you're often looking at, you know, what is the impact? How is this having meaningful change? And I think... Mm -hmm. Uh, especially right now, DEI has become such a buzz uh, word within, within communities and within employers, but not necessarily always with the impact. And I, I know that's something that all three of us share. And it's one of the reasons why I think we all could work together in certain ways is we believe in that importance of impact. Exactly. Um, whether it's, you know, working with veterinarians, which is important. I think the importance of animals and creating a sense of belonging is important. I get to work in an office where people can bring in their dogs, which for me cultivates a sense of belonging, even though my dog would never be able to come in.
0: We tried. We tried bringing my dog in. It was it was a disaster.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, mine would just be up in everybody's business. He would be way too excited every time. But whether it's pets or organizational change or any of these pieces, they all cultivate that sense of belonging and have that impact. So, what are some of the barriers that you're seeing in terms of creating that impact, creating that sense of belonging, whether that's from your own experience or from the many different guests and folks that you get to interact with? Funding. Hmm.
0: That really creates a barrier to having impact because unfortunately the folks that I interface with often will come and say we have just this amount of money to do work and uh, so what can I get for that
1: totally
0: (sighs) which makes it really hard because when I know that they have budget for all sorts of things right yeah you know DEI gets very little budget and other stuff gets you know a ton of budget. So I think the funding is problematic because people will say, well, I can only do this. So, but what can you do with this? And I have to say, not a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, we can start, we can start to have the conversation, but if you think that this little bit is going to result in change that you hope to see, we have to work together a bit more to figure out and help your leaders and help the people who hold the funding to see the value. Totally. I think the other thing that is a barrier is that People think that training is going to fix everything. Yes. Right. And, <laughs> and, and what we do is we do training for sure. And training is a really important part of the work. Right. We'll go back to the, sort of the topic of inclusive hiring practices. You can have a great job description, right? You can go through and remove gendered language. You can ensure that you've got the pay bands. You can do all the things that check the box to make it an inclusive job description. But if you're hiring practices, if the questions that you ask, if the way that you hire people, if the whole interview process is not inclusive, you're going to lose great candidates. Exactly. The other thing that's happening is that the sort of urgency that we felt in 2020 is diminishing, their memories fading. Oh, yeah. You know, the murder of George Floyd is being a major catalyst for sort of having these discussions and sort of creating the sense of urgency uh, to have DEI consultants and strategists come in. That's sort of starting to wane too. And so we have to remind people that, no, no, you can't just forget about this, right? Just because it's not top of the news cycle doesn't mean that this isn't important to your employees as well.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything that you've said. And I've seen all of this in my own work as well. I was giving advice to a company just yesterday who was so excited and talked so much about, you know, how great it was because they could pull budget from places, but they had no consistent budget. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, we see often these short term quote unquote solutions, which often are not actually solutions, they're tokenistic efforts through, you know, bringing in a training, but having it be one off and not really like having any of that consistency. It's one of the reasons why I actually love your product learning snippets, because it encourages employers to consistently think of these issues to consistently consider these as Things to be working on. And, you know, I really hear you in terms of many people have all this money when it comes to other projects. You know, they can throw thousands of dollars down to have a nice catered networking event where they have free alcohol, but then don't have that same money or only have the same money for all of their DEI efforts. And, yep, I really do see this kind of waning of the urgency that was definitely felt in 2020 that has not necessarily had all the lasting impacts for Black folks, Indigenous folks, trans folks in the workplace that we want to see. And I still have seen progress personally. Um, but to follow up on that, you know, how do we address that waning feeling or as some people call it, diversity fatigue, which I really resist that term personally? <laughs> um, I, I feel like it's more resistance that is based in privilege and based in actually being bigoted towards certain groups. But how do we bring people back to the business case, the moral case, the just the fact that this needs to happen and to have interest in this as a lasting piece? How do we address that barrier?
0: I think it's belonging. <laughs> I really think you and Aaron are onto something here with titling uh, your podcast and covering belonging because I'm sure everyone has seen that diagram about belonging being at the center of the DEI sort of Venn diagram. hmm. <laughs> But belonging is such an important part of any workplace initiative. Having employees feel like they belong, that they matter, that they're seen. It hits at the business case. It hits at the moral case. It hits at the culture case. It's actually the one thing that can help convince those leaders who haven't quite bought into the importance of this work. I think belonging has been the missing piece and will be what is needed to move forward. Mm -hmm. And trying to link it to sort of the work that we do. What we've been doing with the learning snippets is that we're exposing people to the experiences of folks in the workplace that they're missing out on or that they aren't seeing. And so we can start to foster belonging when we are more aware, when we are more empathetic towards uh, the experiences of our colleagues, when we notice how identity impacts the employee experience. Mm. We've been designing sessions called Leading for Equity, and it's based in equity and anti-oppression frameworks. And it's really about how do you hold space for different perspectives? how do you yourself as a leader, because I think that's the other thing that happens that leaders will say, you know what, we need these initiatives for the people. You all go do the training. I'll I'll sign off on it. But leaders aren't doing that work themselves. So you've got a workforce who is more aware, who uh, who's doing this training, but leaders are missing out because they don't see it as their responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you've got this big gap between what the workers want and the leaders and they don't see how uh, their role in it. So we've been really focusing on how do we support leaders and understanding their role in creating a more equitable workplace? Because if they're not bought in, we're just going to continue to have the same things repeat themselves.
1: Yeah, I see this happen all the time where we talk about the importance of leadership. And I feel like every DEI practitioner I've ever met talks about the importance of leadership. Mm-hmm. I know some DEI practitioners, they won't do training with an organization unless leadership is involved. Mm-hmm. A- and that is one of their caveats. That's one of their requirements, which sometimes I wish I could do. <laughs> there, There's definitely times, but I also know that there's other avenues and other ways that we can find leadership and who are leaders within an organization sometimes are not only the senior leaders who are making that change, but we need to have their buy in. So it's really about getting them to know about the importance of this being a longevity thing, about the message it also sends for them to be not a part of some of these trainings and the message that sends to other staff who then go, okay, well, the organization is doing this, but this is obviously a checkbox because leadership is not participating with us. They're not here. Yep. Um, I've also seen other companies where they very much have leadership there. I've done trainings where the CEO sat in and other C-suite folks and I saw the change happen in that organization in the year that came after that. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw where they were starting to make those changes. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a great transition point to talking about the future. So I'm going to throw that over to Aaron to see what we're uh, looking towards.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jade. And It's making me think. The question we want to ask is, what are we working towards? And I want to put a little bit of a spin on it, Melissa, and say, how do we also make sure that history doesn't repeat itself? Oh, yeah, um,
0: it's frustrating.
2: I- I'll tell you because
0: I see it so often. And right now, when we, if you look to the U.S. and I, I see the banning of critical race theory and the removal of certain elements of history from the textbooks. Uh, This has happened before. This is not the first time. Um, What does it look like to have a workplace where we don't sort of have history repeat itself? It has to be taught from the beginning. Right. It's hard, but I liken it to elite athletes. You don't just make it to the NBA and then stop practicing. Definitely. It's about building these repetitions and building it into um, sort of our ways of being. So if we think about an athlete, you don't think about dribbling and shooting. You just do it because it's become so ingrained. So when we think about like these skills, you don't just learn what, uh, what it is to be biased and then say, "Okay, I've got it. You have to see it and notice it in all of its various forms. And so this requires practice. Totally. This will take time, of course, but I think if we don't invest in it now, the alternative is that we continue to go backwards and have to claw our way back. Yeah. I think the other thing, too, is that these are not political issues, you know, Mm -hmm. and and that's the scary thing, too, is that these are not political issues. These are, you know, human rights issues. And I think that's the other thing, too, is that a lot of this stuff has become politicized and then it's made it easier to sort of claw things back, which is, you know, super Mm -hmm. disheartening as well.
2: Yeah, it is a bit of a sad place. Mm. But I think about the utopia quite often and I hope that we can get there. So maybe to close us out and our formal questions, what does that utopia look like for you and in, uh, in the communities that you work in?
0: Oh my goodness, that's a, that's a that's a tough question. Um, you know, I go back to this and again this is sort of the cliche where people feel like they belong. Mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And I want newcomers to be able to bring with them their credentials and be able to work in the places that they've trained to be working for. Yes. You know, I want for people to still recognize this ability beyond sort of the pandemic and be like, oh, you know, this has been great for us to work at home and then forget about accessibility after we return to the workplace.
1: Definitely that,
0: you know, I have a young daughter and when she is older, I kind of want her to be able to go into a workplace and that she's going to be able to see
2: herself reflected in that workplace. So I have two children as well. And if we can be part of creating that world where they can just be their best selves, that's what it means to me. And for anyone who's been in love or in partnership, you just have this ease about how you can enter into conversation and what you talk about and how you share things with one another. And That's got to be somewhere on that spectrum of belonging in terms of I'm going to show up at work. And if I'm having a great day, I want to be like my fullest self. And if I'm not having a great day, I want to be able to tell people like, yeah, today is just not like great for me. And like, I might need this from you and just having that open and honest dialogue back and forth. And so if we can paint that picture and, and create that place, I think we've gotten somewhere. So I love that image you painted for us. We gave a little warning at the beginning that we would go through rapid fire. So I hope you're ready.
1: So if there's one book or resource that you could recommend, what would it be?
2: Shadows at Dawn,
1: an Apache
0: massacre and the violence of history. This is by Carl Jacopi. This is an American book, but it shines a light on how if we only have one narrative, if we only hear from certain voices, we are missing so much of the picture. Mm-hmm. I remember I took a course on the history of photography. And so, you know, when you start to look at images and pictures and you realize like you're only seeing what's in the frame and you're missing everything that's happening beyond the frame. And especially when we look at colonial pictures and you realize that beyond the frame, that's the reality that's happening. We've just sort of staged this one photo, this one moment. And that beyond that is what we need to be paying attention to.
2: I am a photographer and you're right. So next rapid fire question. What brings you joy no matter what? My daughter. hmm
0: I have to say, hearing hearing Mummy, that brings me joy for sure.
1: Yeah, I love that. And what's your theme song for today?
0: Florence and the Machine has a new uh, new song out called Free. Um, I'm one of those people who doesn't really listen to the lyrics. It's kind of weird. So independent of, of the actual lyrics, I just love the sound of that song.
2: <laughs> We're very similar, Melissa. <laughs> so... Who is someone that inspires you and in how they create belonging and doesn't receive enough credit?
0: Mm. I'm going to do a shout out to Ashley Johnson, who is the uh, president and founder of the Inclusion Playbook.
1: Great. And to close us out, what's one call to action you'd like from our listeners?
0: Being an advocate is something that you can do. Mm hmm. But being an advocate doesn't mean you have to know everything. It just means you have to sort of pay attention and look for those opportunities to act.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you, Melissa. It has been so lovely chatting with you today. Thank you.
2: One of the pieces that I will take away with me is the history that we um, were taught and then the chosen space that we enter into to learn. And I would say unlearn.
1: Exactly.
2: So that's something I want to pass along to our listeners is that idea of learning and then the idea of unlearning.
1: Yeah, One thing in particular that sticks with me is how she got on this path because of reading the stories and learning the stories of what was happening for her Black cousins, as well as the actual student activism and students actually putting their lives on the line. Yeah. And we're seeing some of that happen on a global scale right now, and especially with what's happening in Iran. And we're seeing real change happen, starting with students, but then going much beyond that.
2: Yeah. I think if we sort of talk about it in the current context and we want to recognize the life of Masha Mini, but also understand that there are still issues that people are fighting for every single day. And so we're not just seeing it as activism in that country. We're seeing others in Canada where we're situated have these conversations. So definitely a lot to think about and knowing that this work is so relevant every single day.
1: Yeah. So from us, we give so much love and solidarity to the struggles that are happening all over from the microcosms in the workplace to the macrocosms in Iran and elsewhere. So this was important for us to discuss and I'm grateful that we got to.
2: Me too. Thank you so much for tuning in. We would also like to thank and share a brief message from our sponsors,
1: through dialogue, education, thought leadership, Pride at Work Canada empowers employers to build workplaces that celebrate all employees regardless of gender expression, gender identity, and sexual orientation. If you're interested in learning more about creating workplaces where 2 LGBTQIA people can feel like they belong, please check out our e-learning courses at education.prideatwork.ca.
2: Many thanks to our production team, editor and producer, Sean Ahmed, communications, Louise Augusto-Nobre, and production support, Connor Pion. And of course, most of all, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this important discussion. Connect with us on LinkedIn and let us know what part of today's episode resonated most with you. For more information about today's guest, links, reference, and a transcript, check out our show notes, which are available on Pride at Work Canada's website. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with us to uncover belonging.